The Latter-day Lives podcast is not owned or operated by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any opinions expressed or implied in this recording are solely those of the host and guests and not of any specific organization, unless otherwise stated. Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 134 of the Latter-day Lives podcast. I hope you're all doing well and staying safe. And thank you so much for joining us again this week. Uh, Before we get into this week's episode of the podcast, we want to thank our reviewers so much. Uh, These are the usernames on iTunes. One is so funny. It took me a couple minutes to figure out. It's I can spell great, but completely misspelled. It's very funny. So thank you for your review as well as Jenner17. Thank you so much for the kind words. Uh, Over on Facebook, I want to thank Susie Dawson and Sharon Beck uh, for your kind reviews. It is just so appreciated and it really does help other people to find the show. So thank you very much. Uh, This week on the program, my guest Becky Ivory has an incredible story to tell. And I do need to warn you up front if you're listening with children, you may want to have some discretion. While we certainly don't get into any dark details or anything inappropriate, uh, it is heavy content. And so I will just warn you of that up front. Becky is amazing. Her story is just incredible. And I'm so grateful to her for sharing it. And this week in my latter day life, it's pimento cheese jars and $20 bills. It's all coming up. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's conversation. And my guest today on the program is a very accomplished and well-known speaker who has been through some uh, pretty amazing experiences in her life and has turned uh, trauma and tragedy into a message of hope. Becky Ivory, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Sean. It's great to be here. I'm so happy to have you. And a special thanks to our, our mutual friend, Nick Galetti, for connecting us. I appreciate that. Why don't we start uh, start from the beginning? Tell us where you're from. Well, I actually grew up uh, in West Valley before it was called West Valley. It was Granger back then. And mm. that's where I was born and lived there until I went off to college. And that was kind of home base for me for a long gotcha. time. Gotcha. So when you were uh, when you were young, tell us a little bit about your family. Were you raised in the church? Yeah, I was raised in the church in that my mom was active. My father was not an active member of the church. We were kind of split in half. So my dad and two oldest brothers were not active members. And my mother and myself and my brother, just oldest, older than me, I'm the youngest. So mm. half of us went to church and half of us did not. And my father and mother were divorced by the time I was eight. And that was mm. a really powerful influence in my life. That really was... Um, more devastating to me than I realized at the time. At the time, I didn't really have words to put into that, but that set a foundation of insecurity for me and fear of abandonment and um, all sorts of internal struggles that really has played a huge role in my life. And, you know, when we talk about some of the stories in my life, you'll see that that had a powerful influence that led me through the things that I would end up going through. Well, we definitely know. I mean, eight holds a very special place with for us as members of the church. Mm-hmm. 
it's an acknowledgement that your life is changing kind of more than any time up to that point. Mm -hmm. So to go through that and everything that you knew to be concrete and solid, uh, I can only imagine who did you, did you end up then splitting time with your parents or how did that work? Um, back then they didn't really do a lot of shared custody. My mom got full custody and my dad moved only about a mile away. So we had the opportunity to see him. Uh, so that wasn't really the, the problem. I think for me, it was uh, that feeling that I had never felt that I was good enough. I felt that mm. I had to be perfect. And it was my job to be the peacemaker in the family. You know, everybody kind of takes an unconscious role <laughs> in their families. For yeah. me, it was to be the peacemaker. And when my dad left, I didn't get a lot of warning. One minute, my life was fine. And the next minute, it was shattered. Mm. And so that was really hard for me. And I went from having a mom who stayed at home and could play with me and take me to you know, school and those kinds of things to suddenly having to, you know, be the last one to leave the house and lock everything up. And my mom wow. had to work two jobs. And so she wasn't able to be available for us after her first job because she had to teach voice lessons through the, or excuse me, piano lessons through the evening. It was just a very, very different life. It kind of turned on its head very quickly. But at the same time, you know, my parents are the, are probably some of the best examples of divorce that you could ask for. Like oh, they good. never spoke badly about each other to us kids. Um, mm. My dad didn't move far away. We could still see him. I had, you know, two good parents who did the best they could to, to love us. It was interesting when my parents got divorced, I was eight. And for the next couple of years after that, I really struggled with figuring out who I was, um, what kind of worth I had. And I really started getting in some trouble not mm. terrible trouble, you know, eight-year-olds can't imagine too much trouble, but I started lying all the time. I started cheating in school. I would steal mm. from the school candy store. I would lie to my friends just to try to look more important. And by the time sixth grade was over, I had this big, what I call a come to Jesus summer. <laughs> and I <laughs> called my sixth grade teacher and I told her about the cheating and I repaid the money to the school candy store. And I, you know, I really? vowed to just put all this behind me. So by the time I started seventh grade, I was on fire. I just really, to be honest, I was trying to be perfect <laughs> as best as I knew how to be perfect. Yeah, and sure. um, I had always been um, a talented singer. That was just one of the gifts that God gave me. And it was one of the things that made me feel confident in myself. And so when I got to junior high, of course, I signed up for choir. I did not realize at the time that that choir teacher would become my abuser. Now, this uh, was a woman, which surprises a lot of people, and it was a, a woman who was very active in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And so, Was she in your ward? She was not. She, she lived in Orem, okay. actually. So, mm. um, But she and her roommate drove uh, every day to the school in West Valley where they taught, and she was, like I said, a very, very active member of the church. She was actually a teacher of the year twice in the state of oh. Utah, very popular teacher. And she just kind of took me under her wings. You know, she saw that I could sing. And so it was kind of natural that she would um, take an interest in me and kind of, you know, give me solos and attention and that sort of thing. Yeah. But the interesting thing is I knew her all through seventh grade and most, let's see, it's, it's hard to pinpoint exactly how things change because it's very sure. subtle. But for about two years, nothing inappropriate happened. 
It was all developing a relationship of trust. And this is called grooming, right? Right. Um, Grooming is just kind of that process that abusers go through to develop relationships of trust with not only the kids, but their family members and whoever, so that they then have uh, complete access without being doubted. You know, they're not going to be questioned about what they're doing. So did this teacher become friends with your family? Though? Oh, big time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, in this book that I'm, I'm writing a book right now about it. And I talk about that. I was not the only one being groomed. My mother was also being groomed. Mm. See, my mom was a single woman. Um, she saw this single woman teacher and felt really bad for her that she had never gotten married She was far away from home. She originally lived back east. That's where her family was from. So she had no family here. And as this woman was kind of giving me time and attention that my mom could no longer give me, you know, my mom wanted to be there all the time, but she had to work two jobs. So here was this very trusted adult in the community taking her daughter under her wings and doing all these wonderful things for her. And my mom thought, wow, isn't this lady amazing? And so she started inviting her over for dinner Um, She literally became a family friend in those two years that was, you know, she would spend the night. um, She'd go on trips with us. It just became, she was a family friend. It was weird. (laughs) Now looking back, it was weird. But at the time, uh, we all thought it was pretty normal. There was a moment where um, my friend Stacy and I, we, we got to know these teachers together in the beginning. And One day we got invited to go to this teacher's home with her roommate, who was also a teacher at the school to um, spend the, spend the night for the weekend and go up to BYU and watch a musical that was happening by then. This is back in, I think, 1982, the musical was Pippin. And since we were in the school musical, they said, you should come and watch this, this musical and spend the night at our house and we'll have dinner. We'll bring you back the next day. Well, as two kids to have some of the most popular teachers in the world asking you to do this. We were over the moon excited, right? Yeah. We thought this was so cool. And we had already developed this relationship of trust and she had never crossed any inappropriate lines at that point. It all seemed- There was never any indicator. Nothing, nothing. nothing. Wow. And um, when I got home, I remember my mom was teaching piano and I said, mom, you know, Jennifer asked me if I would go, you know, if it was me and Stacy could go to her house for the the weekend and watch the show. And we're so excited. And I thought for sure she would say yes. And I could tell by the look on her face that something was wrong. And mm. I'm like, what? You know, you hate it when your parents don't just give you what of you course. want. And um, <laughs> she said, I just, I just don't know. I don't know if I feel good about it. And I was like, what do you mean you don't feel good about it? Like, it's perfect. It's going to be the best thing. And I bugged her and bugged her. And she just kept saying, well, I don't know. Something doesn't feel right. And I seriously, through such a teenage fit, till eventually she said, well, I guess it's okay. So I thought, this is awesome. This is the best thing ever. Well, the interesting thing is we took that trip, Stacy and I went to their home, spent the night, went to the show, had a great time, came home, and nothing happened. Nothing bad happened. It would be about another, almost a year from that moment before she would cross very obvious lines. Wow. But the spirit knew that long before we did. Yeah. Now my mother never got that feeling again. And Mm. even though the abuse started almost a year later and continued for four years, my mother never got another warning 
feeling like that. And in later years, when I went to her and finally told her what had been happening all those years, that's the first thing she said. She said, oh, I knew, I knew I shouldn't have let you go that first time, but I couldn't wow. see any logical reason for it. And I thought maybe I was just imagining things. Maybe I was just making it up. And yeah. that to, to this day, um, my mother's still here. She's, uh, what, 81 years old now, and it's still one of her biggest regrets. So do you, when you look back at it at that time now as an adult, was it, is it obvious that she was grooming or do you think she was fighting urges or can you tell, do you, do you have any way to know? I, I don't know that I would dare guess what was in somebody else's mind. I do know that I was being manipulated and yep. at the time I had no clue about that, whether it was intentional grooming or not. I, I tend to think that there, um, I think in her mind, she had ways of justifying her behavior. Mm. She always stayed an active member of the church. Um, and I know from her conversations with me during those years that she believed that um, the, you know, the brethren, the, the quorum of the 12, the, the priesthood didn't really understand what she was going through and that they were kind of old and just didn't quite get it. And so I think she had ways of kind of justifying her feelings that made sense to her. Do you know if, if while she was, while you were going through this time of building trust and, and grooming, which is just a great word for it, grooming you for this, mm -hmm. um, do you know if she was abusing other girls at this time? I don't know for sure, but the amount of time she was spending with me, I think it would have been near impossible to do it at the same time. So this wasn't something she did with lots of girls. It was you. I believe so. Time-wise. Yeah, I believe so that during those four years, um, she had what she wanted in me. Now, mm. later, it took me 20 years before I would end up going to the school district to have her fired. And that was because in my own mind, I kept telling myself, okay, she wouldn't have done this to anyone else. This was just a one-time mistake. I don't want to ruin her life. I'm just going to go on with it. And, um, as I kind of grew up and matured and realized, you know, different things that were happening, um, it became obvious that I had not really been thinking through that. In fact, at one point, oh, I have to think of the year, probably five or six years ago. Now it was on a Halloween night is when I was outside with my family. We have a, a fire every year on Halloween in the driveway and we roast hot dogs and have all the neighbors over and, it's a really fun night. And that night I was surprised because I ran into a friend of mine who was from the neighborhood I grew up in and she had her kids with her. And we just sat and chatted for maybe 10 or 15 minutes and warmed up by the fire. But as she was leaving, she gave me a hug. I gave her a hug goodbye. And she whispered something in my ear that I've never been able to forget. She said, I am sorry to know what Jennifer did to you. I want you to know that she did it to me too. And there are others. Oh, Now that just, you can imagine my heart just stopped. And I thought, of how course. stupid am I <laughs> that I would believe oh. that I was the only one. Now, of course, this girl had been younger than me by a few years. Mm. Um, and so my guess is that she had moved on to other kids. And, there, and some of the people, she named one name for me of someone that had been older than me. 
uh, I did ask that person if it happened to her and she told me it had not. I don't know if she was telling me the truth or not. And this person that told me it happened to her was whispering in my ear because she didn't want her husband to hear her. She had still never told anyone. And uh, I've tried to encourage her to to get some help and talk to someone. And I don't know if she ever has or not, but that's the problem is that it's such a shame filled thing that people don't talk about it. In fact, the average age that people come forward from child sexual abuse is age 42. Oh my gosh, really? Yeah. 42. So, Oh, Becky, that is so painful. Yeah. So that means, you know, for every 42 year old that comes forward, there might be a 20 year old and there might be a 70 year old. Yeah, but it just takes course. a very, very long time to get that um, adult perspective to where you yeah. can forgive yourself and you can look back and see what really happened. So you go through these years of grooming. At some point, it crossed the line. Was mm-hmm. it, you know, by inches? Was it uh, sort of a, a slow burn, like a little bit here, a little bit here? You know, there was, I think I justified a lot of her behavior um, because I couldn't imagine her being inappropriate, you know? So she would, she would do some things and I would just think, oh, she's just being loving, you know, no big deal. Right. But I do remember, um, the moment that I, that I knew and I couldn't not know anymore. I remember screaming in my own mind, stop, stop, please don't Mm. do this. Please don't do this. Please don't do this. But I couldn't say a word. I just froze oh. and I, I, I didn't know what to say. I didn't want to risk her being angry with me, but the thing is I started just crying and I couldn't stop. And I thought, well, for sure, if she sees I'm crying, she's going to stop because this person loves me, right? She's not right. going to do of something course. that would hurt me or make me sad. And, um, and later she, she had a very manipulative way of, by the time it was over, She made me feel that that was something I had wanted and that, Mm. um, and that I didn't need to be sad and that it wouldn't happen again. And so I thought, okay, no need to tell anybody. It's not going to happen again. But I still thought, what is wrong with me? Like she had me immediately believing it was something that, that I had asked Mm. for. And I thought, okay, but it's never going to happen again. I just don't ever have to talk about it. And of course that was a lie, right? Yeah, of course. Um, but it, it's amazing the the ability that they have to immediately develop shame within the child so that they will not tell anyone. So so after this happens, was there a sense of, okay, I'm done? Or was it just confusion? It sounds like a lot of confusion. So during those couple of years where she's grooming, what they do is they become your world. They make sure that you are so reliant on them that you're not going to leave, right? So she had filled this hole that was kind of left in our family, and I relied Mm. on her for all my emotional support. So there was no chance on earth that I wasn't going to be around her. I just thought this isn't going to, it won't happen anymore. After it happens the second time. Mm -hmm. That must be just, did you, did you feel like you had to accept this as a new normal or how do you process that now? This is not just a one-time thing. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, I can hear, 
I can hear a teenager, a young teen, mm-hmm. justifying this in their head. Hey, this happened once. Let's move on. Uh-huh, uh-huh. No, this happened happens again. hundreds of times. Yeah, hundreds of right. times in the next After four years. After the second time and the third time and the mm-hmm. fourth time, Becky, how, how do you process this? The only way I can describe it is there was one part of me that was so desperately uh, reliant upon her. And also you have to remember, this is where I talk about how the divorce affected me. I was so terrified of being abandoned and she had already separated me from my best friend. So in the process of grooming, part of grooming is they isolate you. So they make sure that you no longer have your friends. You can't trust part of your family. They get it to where they are your world. And so one part of me could not bear the thought of her abandoning me. And the other part of me couldn't bear the thought of not feeling worthy because I I felt strongly. In fact, just as a side note, um, this, the, the sexual abuse began in the ninth grade when I was on seminary council. And I had taken the challenge to read the Book of Mormon that year for the first time in my life. I had never read it all the way through. And when um, our seminary president challenged us to take the Book of Mormon challenge and actually pray about whether it was true or not, I decided to do that. And to be honest with you, I didn't really expect an answer. <laughs> I thought, you know, yeah, yeah, I'll I'll read a bit, read it, but I don't really expect any sort of miracle. When I knelt down and prayed about it, I had um, a pretty spiritual experience where the thoughts that came to my mind were, you've always known it's true. Wow. And I thought to myself, yeah, you're right. I, I do. It's just, mm. it's always made sense to me when the people in my family who didn't live it, it brought a lot of misery. And the people who lived it, it brought a lot of peace. And that just made sense to me. I didn't recognize why I was given that miracle at the time, but that was just before the abuse started. And I think that was the Lord's tender mercy saying, this girl needs to know what's what's right and what's wrong, and she needs to know it right now. And so I had two parts of me, honestly, going on, and I sort of... um, you know, I wasn't schizophrenic, but I sort of acted the same way. When I was with her, I had to completely block out what I knew was right and wrong, what my mm. life was like with everyone else. And I just became what she wanted me to be. And then when I wasn't with her, I had to completely block out what my life was like with her. And I was the good Mormon girl that believed in the gospel and had a great high school life. Mm. And I was completely two different people. And the duplicity was killing me, just killing me. Um, But I learned a lot about why the law says that a child cannot consent to sexual behavior. Because Mm. at 14, I was 100% unable to do anything about it. I know somebody could say I could have, but emotionally, I I couldn't. I could not get myself to do it. But through the years, as 14 turned to 15, you know, then I started being a little braver and saying, you know, that this isn't right, right? I mean, we both believe the church, right? And then she would kind of um, go into this brainwashing mode where she would cry and talk about how unfair the world was and how the gospel, you know, the the brethren just don't understand, et cetera, et cetera. And I would kind of just shut up about it. And then, you know, as 15 turned into 16, and I started having a boyfriend that I really, really liked and 
she would be angry and jealous. And I would start bringing things up a little bit more and then turned into 17 and turned into 18. And over those years, as I grew up, I became stronger and kind of became my own person to where finally by 18 is when I said, okay, I don't care what the consequences are. I have to go talk to my bishop and take care of this. And so it's interesting to see that Mm. growth between a 14-year-old and an 18-year-old, and it's massive. Did your mom at any point have an inkling? Did she ever have a concern? No. Or was this just so well hidden? It, You know, it wasn't. Looking back now, I would say the signs were everywhere. But because she had already spent those couple of years becoming a part of the family, right, everything could easily right. be be justified away. Everything seemed mm. to make sense. Now, in hindsight, talking to my friends now, who were my friends back then, they'll tell me things like, you know, my mom did, had a really uneasy feeling about her and your situation and thought you were way too close. Or, you know, teachers, I, I know that there were other teachers who strongly suspected things were going on. People suspected, but they don't dare say anything. They, they, they think yeah. unless I have proof, unless I see it with my own eyes, I don't want to go turn somebody in. I don't want to ruin someone's life. And part of my training is, you know, we have to actually get to where we are looking for those grooming behaviors. And those are the right. things we need to report. Those are the things we need to stop before it ever gets to a point where, where a child is actually actively being sexually abused. When you finally put your foot down and just said, that's it. I'm done, whatever, let it come what may. I mean, did you feel, did you get some peace and freedom out of that? Did you believe it was really going to be the end? When I was 18 and I was, so I was a voice teacher for, from the time I was 15 and, and I was teaching a voice lesson and I had just tremendous guilt for so long. It was terrible. And one day I was teaching a lesson and the music was a, was a church song and it was absolutely beautiful. And the spirit just touched me in such a way that I knew that today was the day. I absolutely couldn't take it anymore. And I went home, I called my bishop immediately and he said, okay, can you meet me Tuesday? And I'm like, absolutely not. It has to be today. And he was great. And, um, I remember just thinking my life was about to be over. I did not know what was going to happen. I thought my mom would have to find out. I thought my boyfriend and my friend, I had no idea what sort of discipline there was going to be. Cause see, I didn't see it as sexual abuse. I saw it as I was having an inappropriate relationship with a woman. Yeah. And, um, I, it was one of the greatest, most spiritual experiences of my life. And whenever I'm in charge of the young women, I try to tell them this, never be afraid to go talk to your Bishop ever because It was the most cleansing, most powerful experience of my life. And he was wonderful. He he even asked me if it was her because she had been to church with us many times. And I think many people had feelings like this is weird. Um, and I honestly lied to him I because <laughs> I was still protecting her. Um, I just wanted to be right with the Lord and I wasn't out to hurt her in any way. And so I said, no, it's not her, but... If you do guess who it is, I will lie to you. <laughs> I was trying not to lie to the bishop without also yeah. protecting her. And I remember leaving there being the happiest I've ever been in my life, the most free. After four years of hell, I felt absolutely free. And I could mm. feel the Savior's love in a way I had never felt it like that. 
And silly enough, this will tell you how naive I was. I ran back to my house. I got in my car. I went back home. I went to the basement to my little rotary phone on the wall, you know, stretched the cord to my my extra bedroom. And I called her and I was excited to tell her that I had finally talked to the bishop because I was still naive enough to think that's what she wanted to. She had tried to convince me all along. Oh yes, I believe that. You know, we both believe the gospel. Yeah, we're going to have to do that sometime, et cetera, et cetera. So when I finally did it, I thought, well, she's going to be excited. And I remember when I told her there was just dead silence on the phone. Wow. And I didn't understand until I was an adult what really must have been happening on the other side of the phone. But I'm sure she was terrified that I had just told somebody what was happening. And uh, she told me that she was going to go to the bishop as well. And I was told by her that she did. I was also told that she never told him how old I was because she didn't think that was an important detail. And I know that shortly thereafter, she went to the temple. So I don't know if she really ever told the bishop anything or not. That's something I'll never know. But the interesting thing was we continued to have our friendship, our relationship, because I was convinced still that we could have what I had always wanted, which was just a great relationship, just a great friendship Mm. that was in alignment with the gospel. And so I naively thought that's what we could do. But from the very beginning, you know, after that, she would continue to try to cross the line. But I felt so much strength and determination at that point that I would not let her. And she would apologize and cry and kind of do her manipulation thing. And we'd move on. And then the next time we would be together, she would try again and I would stop her. And this would go on and on and on until finally I started realizing this is, she's never going to stop. And, um, and finally I had the courage to say, yeah, I'm, I'm not coming anymore. And so, um, at that point she, she backed off a little bit. She's tried for quite a long time to manipulate me back into that relationship. But from the time I went to the Bishop, I knew that that was something that would never happen again. I just didn't realize that I was the one that was going to have to make that happen. Wow. Becky, that is so amazing. Uh, for a point of clarity, did you, when you talked to your bishop, did you tell him that it was a that it was somebody older, or did you just talk about a relationship? I just told him it, that it was a relationship with a woman. I, and I think that's important because I know that bishops now, especially, go through a lot of training yes. that if it is an abuse situation, uh-huh. they are to go to the authorities. But you position that you couch this as a me and another person, yep. which would lead the bishop to believe it was someone your age. I think he knew in his heart who it was. Like I said, he immediately guessed who it was. Um, But I had been groomed all along to know that if anybody ever found out that she would lose her job, she could go to jail. And I was trained to protect her. Mm, So I did. Yeah. Yeah. And so there was nothing he could really go. Yeah. He couldn't do anything about that. That's a difficult position, I'm sure, for a bishop. Yeah. And I think it's so wise, the changes that the church has made. To, oh, right. to help them do that. I mean, that's, yeah. I, I would not expect any volunteer bishop on earth to know for themselves what to do in that situation. Right. So you definitely right. want to turn to the professionals. At this point, when, when you finally said enough's enough, did that completely break off that relationship then? Uh, like I said, it took several months 
um, of going through the process of, of thinking I could trust her, then finding out I couldn't, then thinking yeah. I could, finding out I couldn't, and getting to the point where I was like, okay, obviously she doesn't feel the same way about the church that I do. And yeah. um, But then you were able to just cut it off completely and say, you're not a part of my life. Well, anymore. no, not completely. I still was convinced that you know, she was this, you know, nice person that could be a friend. I mean, she came to my wedding, um, in the temple, she would send me birthday cards and that's not unusual. Um, abusers who are worried about others finding out will try to keep that tie so that there's still that trust. There's still that, you know, Mm. you, you wouldn't ever suspect me of doing something like that. Right. Yeah. Well, let's get on with a little bit with Becky's life and then we'll circle back around okay. to, uh, you know, when when you brought all this to light. So you end up uh, graduating high school. Mm-hmm. Where did you go from there? BYU. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How was your BYU experience? Loved BYU. Love, love, yeah. loved it. I got to be in the university singers there. And that was just a, a really powerful experience. Went into music education. Loved that. Awesome. What came after BYU? Um, I was there for three years. And before I graduated, um, my husband and I got married after my second year, Uh, finished my third year there while we were married. And then he got a job in Japan as a coordinator of international relations. So we ended up moving to Osaka, Japan for a year. And that's Mm. where we had our first daughter. And uh, then after that, we came back and saved money for law school for a year. And then we headed to San Diego where he went to law school for a few years and had some more kids. <laughs> awesome. How many kids do you guys have? Uh, we have four total. Yeah. Four total kids. Okay, great. When did you get interested in, in becoming a public speaker? So my husband was in the state legislature for nine years until just this mm. last August. And he, having dealt with my situation and seeing all the damage that is caused by that kind of abuse, he decided he was going to pass a law in the state of Utah. When I had her fired 20 years after it happened, the state of Utah took her license away. But two years later, the state school board held a closed door meeting where they handed her her license back. She didn't. Yeah, no. Yeah, I, I, it's mind blowing to me. That is unbelievable. Yeah, oh. especially because she did admit it when she was fired. She she did admit that it had been happening, and so they gave her her license back. And that was something that blew our minds. In fact, there's letters out there um, from some of the people who were on the state school board who blame me for the whole situation that it was somehow somehow my fault. And oh, so, come on. yeah, no, I have the letters in my possession. They're they're pretty interesting. But so that was something as a state legislator that just blew his mind. So he said, I'm going to pass a law this year that would make it illegal for anyone who had ever been convicted of a sexual um, uh, felony to ever teach in the state of Utah. And I said, hallelujah, go for it. Yes. And he course. said, would you be willing to testify? And I said, not on your life. <laughs> I, said, uh, I said, you know, if you can pass this law without me, I would like to be left out of it. And at that point, I had only told him, my mother, and uh, a handful of friends. And, he, and I thought, you know, the idea of talking about this in front of the state legislature with the reporters and everybody, the whole world would know. And I don't want everybody to know that's what I've been through. So he said, okay, no big deal. Well, then that Halloween happened. And this friend told me that there was more, uh, were more victims. 
And something snapped in my head at that time that really turned me 180 degrees around. I knew I couldn't just sit by and watch this continue to happen. Mm. And so I created a a foundation um, called a most sacred trust. And its purpose was supposed to be helping to prevent um, sexual abuse in our schools and help educate people how this happens in schools and how we can prevent it. And I became, I told, went to my husband and said, okay, I'll testify. And that was when I started um, becoming a little bit more comfortable telling that story, going in front of the legislature. And then as the, different laws kept coming up that we were working on. And I think over five years, we passed um, 10 very significant laws that many of them are being copied in other states now. And that gave me a lot of opportunities to not only testify in front of committees and on the floor of the house, but to work with different survivor groups, to work with um, UEA and all, all sorts of different groups as we worked on this. My shame kept falling to lower and lower levels as, as it got out in the, in the light, you know, who did, who did you go to first? Who was the first person you told about this? Oh, my husband, your husband. Yeah. How, how hard was that? Did that take a, a long time oh, building up to it? My gosh. Or did it just break? It was agonizing. Um, I didn't mm. tell him till we had been married for three years. And when I had talked to my bishop he had assured me that I was clean and I didn't need to tell anyone ever again. So I was going to hold him to that. It's <laughs> like, no way is anybody ever, ever going to find out. Bishop said. Exactly, exactly. But there's a problem when you feel like you can't be your whole self. You can't, that you're hiding part right. of yourself, even if that part right. has been taken care of. And one day, um, we'd been married three years and my husband had been inactive from the church his entire life until he turned about, I think, 19 and had wow. his own spiritual experience. And so he had some interesting stories to tell. And one night we were lying in bed and he told me something he had done as a kid. And then he said, you know, I think now you know the worst thing that I've ever done. And I was just, my heart oh. stopped. And I thought, that's the worst you've ever done. Please <laughs> oh, no. don't tell me that's the worst you've ever done. Oh, and I you. thought, I cannot tell him what I've done. And I remember the tears just started coming and I rushed out of bed I ran into the bathroom and started turning on the bathtub because I just needed noise to, to like, I needed an excuse of why, you know, why I'm in the bathroom bawling. And I started just sobbing and sobbing and sobbing. And he could hear me, of course. So he came in and he put his arms around me and he said, what is the matter? And I just, I said, I cannot tell you. And he said, honey, you can tell me anything. What is it? And I said, no, you don't understand. I can't tell you. And after probably... 10 or 15 minutes of just sobbing, I finally just blurted it out. And I still didn't know it had been abuse at that point. I still thought I am just this, this, you know, depraved young woman that is something's wrong with me. Uh, And I I told him that I had had this four-year relationship with a woman and he wasn't even phased. He just held me. He told me it was fine. He told me he loved me. And I remember waking up the next morning and looking across the bed and thinking, he's still here? Like, did he oh. not hear what I said last night? Because I was convinced if he ever knew that we would of be divorced, course. that nobody would love me. And you build that up in your mind. Oh, and, absolutely. Oh, and, in, and in his mind, it was very clearly child abuse. He did not realize that it wasn't that clear in my own head. 
And so after that, after being willing to tell him was when my own brain started being, uh, I started allowing myself to remember, to, to think about it, to, to start to kind of let that be a part of my consciousness instead of trying to push it down all the time. And one day I was watching, I can't remember if it was 2020 or 60 minutes. It was one of those news type shows. And I was just by myself at the house. I think I'd put my daughter down to bed and Ken was off at law school studying. And I'm watching this show where they're interviewing child molesters in prison and they've all got their faces blurred out. They're in a group setting and they are very openly teaching about the grooming process. And they're talking about how they got their victims and what it took to manipulate them and their families. And, and then they showed this uh, young lady who was uh, having a sexual relationship with her sports coach in high school. And they interviewed her because she wanted to go on TV. And she said, this is not abuse. I love him and he loves me and he's going to leave his wife and blah, 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 you know. And I remember yeah. watching her and thinking, what is wrong with her? How can she not see that she's being manipulated? And I remember walking back into the kitchen to put my dinner dishes away. And it was like a baseball bat in the face just hit me. And I went, oh my gosh, that's me. Yeah. And it was the first oh. time I realized that I had been manipulated. And then I was livid, <laughs> livid. Really? And that's finally when I wrote her a letter and said, you are never to contact me again. You're never to talk to my family again. And that's when I cut her out of my life. But it took me that Becky, long. That I was probably 22 amazing. years old by then. Oh my gosh, Becky, this is so amazing. And your strength through all this, were, by the time you reached this point, were you able to kind of see child Becky through the eyes of adult Becky? Finally, finally, oh. finally. Yeah. But even that, you know, it took me many years of being willing to, you know, even think about it. In fact, for a long time, I still, um, you know, people would say, well, it's abuse because you were a kid. But in my own mind, I still believed what she had told me that, that I had probably wanted it. And after I had allowed myself to really be thinking through this and started to realize it was abuse. The Lord blessed me with another really good tender mercy, which was uh, a memory of that first time that it had happened. And I remembered oh, yeah. those thoughts and feelings and remembered thinking, oh, please don't, please don't, please don't, please don't. And I thought, oh, I didn't want it. That is not oh. what I wanted. And that was just a huge, huge life-saving memory for me. Yeah. So, and then it's just been yeah. a process of healing that has gone through a lot of stages since then. When you wrote the letter, did she then comply? Did she back out of your life she did. completely? Yeah, she did. Okay. So then now it's, you know, 17 years later, whatever, 20 years mm -hmm. after the abuse. Mm -hmm. um, was it triggered by this this other woman that you talked to when you found out there were others? Was that what led you to want to go to the uh, school? You know, um, there's a couple things that happened. One of the things I think that that really set me off the most was a lot of those stories going on about different priests abusing kids. Right. Um, I think that's when I finally went to the school board and thought, okay, I can't, I can't yeah, in this reality. Is probably serial yeah. I can't let point. this keep going. And then yeah. later when our own church came out with the statement that people who had been, um, who had abused children 
would have their records marked and they would not be allowed to work with the youth. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, she shouldn't be working with the youth. And I thought, oh, crap, here we go again. And I went and talked to my bishop and and uh, he said, well, should we, you know, do you need help? Let's contact her bishop. And I did. Because um, the one thing that was really interesting about all this is she never, um, she never did tell her bishop how old I was at any point, because in her mind, that just wasn't important. And so to me, the fact that she didn't get that was why I felt I couldn't trust her. Like if she had understood, oh my gosh, you were a kid and that was so wrong. You know, at least you could understand that maybe she got that, but, um, but she thought it was all fine. Yeah. Just another woman. Yeah, exactly. When I did finally have her fired and two years later when they were going to give her a license back, nobody ever contacted me. So I didn't know that's what was happening at the time, but she reached out to my mom and asked for permission to call me. And my mom uh, called me and said, do you want to talk to her? And I was like, not really. Said, you can give her my email address and we'll Mm. see what she has to say. So she contacted me through email and I said, I wrote her back and I said, the only question I have for you before we can discuss anything is did you ever tell any of your bishops how old I was? And um, her response was, my repentance was complete. And basically she cut off the all conversation. And so I, oh I think she was reaching out yeah. to me to see if I would fight back if she tried to get her life. You know, she did go back to teaching. And I yeah. think she figured out pretty quickly that I wasn't going to tolerate that. I used to Google her all the time to make sure she was, she wasn't teaching again. I think she pretty much knew I would have come forward and said something. Now you've made, you know, part of your work and part of your mission is speaking about this and, and speaking out. And you have some some uh, tips that you've come up with with parents. I think, did you refer to them as the fences? Was that what it was? Yeah. You know, have you ever heard that great poem that talks about, you know, the, the fence at the top of the cliff or the ambulance down in the valley? No, no. Oh, it's, I have not heard that. It's, it's a beautiful poem. And it basically talks about, you know, sometimes we, we are so concerned about putting an ambulance at the bottom of the cliff to catch people after they fall rather than putting a fence at the top of the, at the cliff to avoid that. Right. And yeah. so um, I use that as a good example of how we need to build some fences to protect our children. And I have five fences that I teach about. The first two are really external fences. They're things that we can put up and see and know that they exist. So for example, the first fence would be the fence of common sense. So we have to educate people on what really happens and how it happens and how we can avoid those situations. Um, And the second fence that we have to build is transparency. And I'd like to teach parents, teachers, um, any adults, how we can create situations where there's just not that secrecy. There's no darkness to hide in. It's one of the reasons I love the church's um, too deep leadership policy that they have with youth now. That's all about transparency. So those are kind of external fences. And then the other three fences are internal fences that we have to help our children build. Um, So for instance, trusting them or teaching them to trust their feelings. When something isn't Mm. right, it's okay to say something. Even if you can't see uh, see a logical reason why something's wrong, you go ahead and trust your feelings. And with adults, I like to tell them, um, trust your feelings, but don't rely on them. Because sometimes you don't get the Holy Ghost saying, hey, something's wrong here. 
right? Uh, so we trust them when something happens, but we also put up good fences so that we don't have to, you know, try to look for our spidey senses every time something happens. And then the other internal fence, one of them is finding your voice, being able to open your mouth and talk to somebody that you trust. If I had gone home from her house that first time that I knew she had crossed the line and said to my mom, mom, something happened. I know for a fact it would never have happened again. Right. My mother would have made sure of it, but I didn't trust myself. I didn't trust my ability to, to even say something. And so Mm. being able to teach your children that your voice matters and you will be listened to and believed. Even if this is our best family friend, even if this is your father or your brother or your neighbor or your bishop, you will be heard and believed is so, so important. And then one of my favorites that I love to teach about is um, building the internal fence of empowering our children to recognize that they can recognize a problem and find a solution for it. So, Mm. you know, if I, I grew up really feeling like I was powerless, that I was worthless, that I was helpless. So why would I believe that I could stop this situation? Right. Especially with somebody who was so well-loved, so trusted, so beloved in the community, who's going to believe me? Molesters choose children who will be quiet Mm. and go along and do what they want them to do. Confident kids get pushed to the side and they will go for an easier, lower hanging fruit. Wow. Oh, Becky, this is all so fascinating. If people are interested in learning more, uh, what's the best way to get, get a hold of you? Uh, if you reach out, my, my website is beckyivory.com. And if you just contact me at Becky at BeckyIvory.com, we can always talk about whatever your specific needs are. I love to do individual coaching. I'm passionate about that because I love to help people who have, whether it's this specific challenge or not, but things that are holding them back that have really messed with their belief systems. And when they find themselves struggling to accomplish their goals over and over and over again, I love to help them move through that and and find success in their goals. So that's one of my passions. And then of course I do love speaking. I love speaking on this subject and other lessons that I've learned throughout these situations, like, you know, communication and connecting with others and, and really figuring out who you are. And those are all things I love to do. So they can connect with me anytime. And I will have this book out hopefully in the next five to six months. Oh, that is great. And I will be the first one to buy it because you're just so inspiring. Um, One more thing on this topic. Uh, The statistics would tell us that uh, in a listening audience of thousands, we probably have multiple listeners who have been abused, who maybe have not spoken about it yet, Mm -hmm. are still holding it inside or thinking they can move past it internally. What, what would you suggest having gone through it? And I hate to say on the other side, I I don't think we ever get on the other side of this, but, but uh, being where you are, what message do you have for people who might, might not have been able to, to share this yet? I know that a lot of people are hoping to take it to their grave because they feel like that is the best option. And I guess the message I would have for you, if you're listening and this has unfortunately been a part of your life, I want you to know that the Savior loves you. 
that your worth has never changed and that he will take everything that has happened to you and he will use it for your good. It's impossible to imagine sometimes. I love the scripture in um, 2 Nephi chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, where he says, In thy childhood, he's talking to Jacob, his son, but he says, In thy childhood, thou hast suffered afflictions and much sorrow because of the rudeness of thy brethren. Mm. Nevertheless, thou knowest the greatness of God, and he shall consecrate thine afflictions for thy gain. I promise that if you will trust the Lord and you will find those people in your life that you can trust and turn to them, that this can actually be a source of strength and peace for you rather than a source of darkness and fear. And that is all because of the Savior. We are going to wrap up um, with the question that we ask all of our guests, and that is, Becky Ivory, what does being a member of the church mean to you? Being a member of the church has saved my life in so many ways because I learned from the beginning that when I live the gospel of Jesus Christ, I have peace. And when I don't live the gospel of Jesus Christ, I don't have peace. And I would love to say that I live it every day. (laughs) I don't. I try But the gospel of Jesus Christ is my source of peace, and I'm so grateful for that. Mm, Incredible. She is a wife, a mother. She is a speaker. She is a soon-to-be author, which we can't wait for. She is a survivor of incredible abuse, and she is giving hope to the world as a magnificent daughter of God. Becky Ivory, thank you for sharing your Latter-day Life with us. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. And my special thanks to my guest, Becky Ivory, for coming on and sharing her story. I so appreciate her candor and her strength, and what a message uh, for her to share, a message of hope and inspiration. I just really appreciate it. A couple of postscript notes. Uh, Becky shared with me that a few years ago, her abuser did pass away. That is something that that Becky shared with me. And also, if you or someone you know uh, has been a victim of sexual abuse, or if you suspect that maybe someone has, uh, the church has a great website with uh, lots of resources. It's churchofjesuschrist.org slash get dash help slash abuse. That's churchofjesuschrist.org slash get dash help slash abuse. This is uh, especially right now while we're not at church maybe as much, but of course you know you can reach out to your bishop anytime. They've gotten a lot of training. If you have been abused, please get help, uh, or if you know someone who has, as difficult as it is, and uh, please get yourself or that person the uh, the appropriate help. This week in my latter-day life, uh, I got to thinking about how our lives are shaped and one of the things that I got to laughing about was thinking back to uh, my wife's grandmother. It was one of the sweetest ladies I've ever met. She passed away a few years ago, and she was such a funny, funny woman, very just full of life. And when we would go have lunch at her house, she lived in California, 
And she would always serve this big, beautiful spread of lunch. And she would give us these little jars to drink out of. And she would pour juice in these jars. And these jars were not, they were not juice cups, that's for sure, juice glasses. They were, if you've ever seen the pimento spread, the pimento cheese spread, those little jars that uh, cheese spread come in, uh, she would wash them out and keep them. And that's what she would serve juice in. And that's because she was raised during the time of the war. And she was raised during the time of the Depression or a child out of the Depression. And that is what she went through. And she was part of that waste not, want not generation where she couldn't bring herself to waste anything. That was what she lived with. And it just always made me smile that that's how she was. And it's easy to laugh at past generations and some of the things they do. But I've been in my career for, uh, I don't know, 23 years now, I think it is. And, you know, I travel a ton. And when I was younger and started traveling, especially to places like New York City and Chicago, nobody took a credit card. If you went into a deli in New York City, they would laugh at you if you asked if they'd take a credit card or a taxi. None of the cabs were set up to take cards. It was all cash. And so I started carrying cash. And it's something that has carried on even now. And now, how often do I need cash? But my kids all know (laughs) if they need cash, they know I've got it. Because if I don't have at least $100, preferably a little bit more, on me at all times, I hate leaving the house, even to go for a walk, without a wallet and without cash in it. And that came from all those years of travel, just never wanting to be stuck. And I got to thinking about, uh, as we go through this time, you know, there are children who are being born right now, uh, who are very young, who may not remember anything about coronavirus. And maybe one day they're going to be looking at their parents or their grandparents and saying, hey, why do they always have so many uh, wipes laying around, you know, for cleaning wipes? And why do they have so much toilet paper stockpiled? All these things that we go through, we are definitely the sum of the events that happen throughout our lives. I think sometimes it's funny to look at other people and you go, gosh, because they lived through this or that, they're like that. But aren't we all? Aren't we all? Don't we all have those little things? And as we go through this coronavirus, we're going to come out the other side different. No question. I pray and hope that we're coming out the other side better, that being able to do church at home has made us stronger, that figuring out creative ways to serve our fellow man while we might not be able to stand shoulder to shoulder with them, that it will strengthen us, that it will make us better. And I certainly think Provident Living is going to change for a long time as we look at our food storage and we look at our toilet paper storage and our cleaning supplies and all those things. I am grateful to live in this time. I am grateful for the things that have shaped me throughout my life and that have made me, me. Even the quirky things that I do in my life, I'm just grateful for those events and grateful for my family and their patience with me and for this wonderful, wonderful thing we call life. So thankful to be on this earth at this amazing time as we are living through true history. And that's what's happening this week in my latter-day life. Thank you so much for tuning in again this week. We sure appreciate it. If you have a free minute while you're in this lockdown and you you could think about maybe giving us a a review, we would really appreciate it. Uh, If you want to reach out to me directly, I can be reached at sean at latterdaylives.com. I do want to thank some incredible listeners. I got a few emails this past week 
that were just so beautiful. And one of my listeners who uh, is a, an author, a science fiction author, he didn't give me a, a permission to share his name, so I won't. But uh, he sent me five of his books this week, just as a thank you for the show. And I'm so grateful you know who you are. And I, I did reach out to him. So I appreciate it. I'm so grateful for it. And uh, I guess that's uh, about all we've got for you this week. So until we meet again, there is a great, big, beautiful world out there. So go be in it, just not of it. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.